Hello and welcome to another episode of Dawncast. I'm Dai Lee and it's a real honour to actually have uh, Associate Professor Carolyn Ford uh, joining us to talk about ovarian cancer. Just a quick little introduction to Professor Ford. She established her lab uh, at the Lowy Cancer Research Group in 2010 following her uh, international postdoctoral fellowships at the University of Toronto, uh, Toronto, Canada and Lund University of uh, Sweden. So welcome and thank you for joining us. should I call you Professor Ford? Um, certainly not. <laughs> Please call me Caroline. <laughs> uh, so thank you for um, you know giving us your valuable time to talk about the work that you do. Uh, tell me, how are you going, first of all? How are you faring in this COVIDian time, as I call it? I like this time. I'm calling it the weirds. Um, I, <laughs> I'm finding it particularly strange. Um, I'm finding it really positive in a lot of ways, um, really challenging in a lot of ways. Uh, we've had to shut down our laboratory work for about the last eight weeks. So oh, that's no. been, yeah, that's been really challenging having um, scientists that are used to performing experiments in a lab um, and interacting with patients in the hospital suddenly now working from home offices. Um, so that's been a huge adjustment for our team. Yeah. But actually, I think ultimately very, very positive. And the good news is, is that we're looking at reopening the lab next week, actually, and people are gonna um, get back in there and, and get back uh, on board with our experimental work. Oh, wow. So for those eight weeks, did that mean that you had to stop, like your research work kind of came to a halt? So no, nothing came to a halt. Um, What it meant is that we were doing lots of analysis um, online. We do a lot of bioinformatics, so actually looking at biological and clinical data, things like um, the genetics of ovarian cancer, and those are all things that we can do on a computer. So it meant that people were doing analysis and we were also writing up publications and manuscripts. And we were also continuously uh, writing grant applications. That's a huge part of my job. So that's computer work. So um, we've been actually quite productive. The biggest challenge, I think, has been keeping the team connected, which I think is across all sectors, trying yeah. to um, trying to lead a team and keep everyone feeling connected and included has been um, the hardest part. How, how big is the team? Um, so my group at the moment is about uh, eight scientists uh, and they range from really junior researchers that are completing their research year in an undergraduate degree to PhD students to what we call postdoctoral fellows who are people that have done a PhD and then are, are doing some further training. Um, and we also work with a lot of clinicians and doctors and nurses at the hospital, primarily the Royal Hospital for Women in Sydney. Um, so yeah, a lot of our work is collaborative beyond our, our small um, team. So, so what, uh, what is ovarian cancer uh, and how, uh, how many people does it take, like kill uh, on an annual yeah. basis? So um, ovarian cancer, I guess the thing that I often tell people is what ovarian cancer is not because many people, um, and particularly in Australia, but also in lots of different communities, I still think have a, a fairly high degree of discomfort when we talk about women's reproductive organs. Many highly educated women and men 
are still a little bit confused and embarrassed about, okay, what's actually your ovaries? What's your cervix? What's your uterus? Um, and many women mistakenly think that a pap smear tests for ovarian cancer. And that's a really successful cancer screening test, but it actually tests for cervical cancer, which is a completely different part of the anatomy. So ovarian cancer is cancer of your ovaries. So a woman is usually born with two ovaries and ovarian cancer can arise in the ovaries or the fallopian tube. And in Australia, um, it's about 1600 women a year that are diagnosed. So that's about four women a day are diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And unfortunately, three women every day in Australia die from ovarian cancer. Wow. So, but are they linked? Like uh, you said, they're not linked, but uh, does that having ovarian cancer that's lead to cervical cancer? And uh, and is that connected somehow? Or you can have ovarian cancer and not have any other thing? Uh, they, they can be completely unlinked, actually. They're quite uh, unique organs and parts of our body. Interestingly, ovarian cancer is linked to breast cancer. So some of the genes that we know are linked to hereditary breast cancer also predispose women to developing ovarian cancer. So that's why many breast cancer survivors also remain at an elevated risk of developing ovarian cancer and they may make decisions such as prophylactic surgery uh, as in removing their ovaries to reduce that risk. Ah, okay, cuz I I am a breast cancer survivor and you oh, just wow. you just triggered in me the memory that um, I actually had to go and have some tests to see whether or not I had the genetics, um, the BRCA genes, is that right? Yes, that's correct. And they said if if I had the BRCA genes, apparently that they would have to do a hysterectomy. Mm. I mean, like that was a really like, I'm thinking, what does it mean? They're taking my ovaries out and everything. Uh, Luckily, I didn't have uh, a BRCA gene. But now that you've just reminded to me, there is a link between um, breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Yeah, and it's very um, confronting for many women because our ovaries are our ability to have children. They also um, are important in our secretion of hormones, and um, and it's a huge, it's a huge part of being a woman. So anything that affects this area of the body is is tied up with a lot of emotions, um, also a lot of a lot of stigma, and certainly. Um, one thing that I'm very keen to promote is for women to be much more aware of their own body and to not be self-conscious about any unusual symptoms that they might have or to feel awkward if they have changes in menstruation or um, changes in in how things feel down there, that they should feel comfortable to go and speak to their GP about that and even to speak to their girlfriends um, about what's normal. I think we're not particularly great in women's health that having conversations about you know, what's pre-menopause feel like or what's an unusual um, menstrual cycle. And um, certainly in many um, cultures in Australia, that's even more so that you just certainly do not speak about those things. Absolutely, right? yeah. I mean, you know, with, with breast cancer, you can say, uh, you know, you, you've got a lump. I Last week, a, a friend of mine said, oh, I need to see you because I think I found a lump. I said, well, you know, you need to see a doctor. <laughs> You can't. You don't need to see me. No, but I need you to actually feel the lump, so that to see. I said, but even if I felt the lump, I don't know. You know, you still should see a doctor. But she wanted to see me first, and 
like really, I you know, I kind of was feeling the lump for her. But for that, that's breast cancer. So with ovarian cancer, how are you going to detect if you've got ovarian cancer? Yeah, and look, this is one of our biggest challenges in this disease. So it's not as obvious as a lump. So many women that have really aggressive ovarian cancer have no symptoms at all. Um, however, there are a few clear signs, and those are things like um, what most women notice is increased abdominal size. So they get really, really bloated, but to an, a fairly extreme level. They can also have um, a feeling of feeling very full, even if they've only eaten a little bit. So not only a lack of appetite, but suddenly, you know, you only eat a small amount of food and you feel extremely full. Um, it can feel a little bit for women that have experienced pregnancy, a little bit like pregnancy when you feel that there's pressure in your abdomen um, and pressure on your bladder. So none of the symptoms of ovarian cancer are the sorts of things that necessarily are huge red flags um, and send w women off to their doctors. So that is why one of the um, biggest goals worldwide for ovarian cancer research is to develop an early detection test. So what, what my lab at the University of New South Wales and what many researchers across the world are trying to do is develop a blood test where women, when they go in for their pap smear or some other regular test at their GP, they could simply just have some blood taken and we could look for the very, very earliest signs of a change from a normal cell into an ovarian cancer cell so that we can pick it up early. Because if even now, if we manage to diagnose a woman with ovarian cancer at an early stage, which is called stage one, the, the success rates are, are great. They're over 90% survival rates. Um, they're on par with the great success we have in treating breast cancer in this country and around the world. The problem is currently most women are diagnosed at the later advanced stages that we call stage three or four. And that's when the cancer has already spread or metastasized throughout the body. And that makes it extremely challenging to treat because um, people describe it as like grains of sand throughout the body to be able to actually remove all of that tumor from a woman or to treat with a drug is, is extremely challenging. So how, how far uh, are you with the research into that blood test? Yeah, so, um, so as I said at the beginning, I've got quite a small team, but they're really clever. <laughs> so uh, we think we're onto a, onto a really uh, interesting idea where we're looking at the idea of cell-free DNA. So it's this kind of cool thing that um, when you have a tumour growing in your body, even if it's really, really tiny and so tiny that you might not even detect it on a, on a screen, um, that that tumour releases DNA into our bloodstream and that we can look for specific genetic markers and specific genes being turned on or off in that DNA in a woman's blood that would be like a a red flag a or would highlight the fact that there's an early tumour growing and then we could go in with other tests and surgery to remove it. So um, we think that's an interesting approach that at the moment what we're trying to do is just ensure that that test is as specific and sensitive as possible. A lot of medical research um, not to get too ranty, <laughs> has been generally conducted by, by men uh, and have, has not often appreciated some of the complexities of women. And so we need to think about things like the fact that women 
uh, menstruating and every woman is on a different stage of her cycle all of the time and that affects what happens in her body that many women have other conditions like endometriosis or yeah. polycystic ovary disease or they may be getting fertility treatment so we need to be really really careful that our ovarian cancer test only tests for ovarian cancer and that it's not picking up just a normal fluctuation that most women would have does that make sense yeah yeah, yeah. so so that's that's challenging <laughs> so are you close to getting that test that that accuracy of that test yeah, delivered. so we're spending a lot of time actually looking at healthy women and trying to look at healthy women at different stages in their cycle to see what changes. We're also looking at women that have some of these other conditions like endometriosis to rule them out. So we're going through sort of a very strategic process of elimination to get the best set of genes that will be specific for ovarian cancer. So, yeah, I'm very hopeful that we can get there. It just is going to take time and it takes research funding to actually make that happen. Yeah, so the, so the two question is how, how long to go do you think you'll get there uh, and is there funding available? Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, it's just a matter of sort of input in is actually going to be the impact. So we've seen uh, in the example of breast cancer that survival rates for breast cancer in the 1970s were sitting at around 70%. We had a huge influx of um, not only sort of public awareness of breast cancer and pink ribbon campaigns and all of the amazing fundraising that's been done, lobbying by women that survived breast cancer, more research funding into it. And that has had a direct impact on not only the screening for that disease, but the types of drugs and therapies we have available. So breast cancer survival is now over 95%, which is an incredible, incredible yes. result. And you're, you're a beautiful example of that. Ovarian cancer rates of survival are around 43% and have sat at that level for the last 30 or 40 years. Wow. And it's really because we just have not had the level of investment in research that we've had in other diseases. It's not that it's inherently more challenging or difficult. It just means we need to focus on it and we need to invest more money. We had a wonderful day last Friday. It was World Ovarian Cancer Day. Yes. And we had a very happy um a happy day as we were one of the research teams that was awarded. We got $2.7 million from the federal government, the Medical Research Future Fund, which Congratulations. is absolutely remarkable. It's a team led by Nicola Bowden, who's a good friend of mine, an associate professor up at the University of Newcastle. And the government actually invested $16 million in ovarian cancer research just, just a few days ago. This is the biggest thing to happen to ovarian cancer research in in my lifetime in this country. It will make a huge difference and it's very, very welcome, but it's still an absolute drop in the ocean. $16 million might sound like a lot of money, but it's not compared to what we need and what is uh, invested in other types of disease research across the country. So that, that funding that was announced uh, recently, that you, you, your team and, and the community who are the champions of ovarian cancer must have feel like jumping over the moon <laughs> at this time, was, especially, especially COVIDian time whereby a lot of the funding and resources have gone into everything COVID, hasn't it? 
That's right. And look, I think it was an absolute testament to work of groups like Ovarian Cancer Australia, but also some really remarkable um, patient advocates. So particularly a journalist called Jill Emberson, who was an ABC journalist who um, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and sadly passed away in December of last year. She was the most incredible advocate for this disease. She went and met with Greg Hunt. She is absolutely one of the reasons that this money came through. And I think it's a sad state of affairs for ovarian cancer that because the survival is is so awful for this disease, we don't have an army of ovarian cancer survivors out there to speak about this disease. Most women that have ovarian cancer um, die very quickly from it. They are very unwell. It's very shocking to their family. So one really nice initiative of the last few years that, that Jill herself was an important part of was something called Pink Meets Teal. And it was about getting breast cancer survivors like yourself die to actually advocate for their sisters that are dying of ovarian cancer and say, look, we're the example of where we have benefited from medical research and the advances that we've had. So now we're gonna use our voices and platform to actually help out um, our sisters who have this other horrendous disease. Oh, absolutely. If there's anything I can do in that space, let me know. Cause I, you know, the uh, I, I am part of the breast uh, cancer trials research group. Uh, they Wonderful. asked, you know, me to share their story, uh, my story with them. Uh, I'm part of New South Wales Cancer Council. A lot of their ongoing uh, fundraising and, and uh, ra- awareness raising activities, I, I take part in that as well. So if there's anything, and, and, and that's the reason why I, I wanted to understand the work around ovarian cancer research um, with you today so that actually kind of can promote that as well. Um, so w- what drove, or what, what what is it that drives you around ovarian cancer research? Why why did you choose this particular field to look into? Mm. Yeah, I think I often get asked that and I, I wish I had a sort of pithier response. Um, I think it's just, I mean, I've always loved science. I've been fascinated by disease and trying to understand mechanisms of disease and how we can treat them for a very, very long time. I actually trained as a virologist. So oh. um, my PhD was in, was in vi- virology and looking at viruses that are associated with cancer. So it's an interesting time for me with um, COVID-19 because yes. all of my peers and my old PhD supervisor is in the news every day. And, and I feel a, a faint sort of longing for my, <laughs> for my days of virology. But um, I think what drove me about ovarian cancer was really... I guess my desire as a feminist to try to actually rebalance this inequity that we have in women's health, that we don't necessarily focus on women beyond maybe their ability to procreate (laughs) and, you know, once they get through pregnancy, we're kind of done with them. And I think, um, unfortunately... Going downhill then from then (laughs) after giving birth. I think because people find it, awkward or weird or or whatever it is and also medical research and the whole stem sector is um, still very unequal in regards to men and women we don't have uh, equity at the senior level so a lot of the research labs are run by men and will focus on something that they deem to be important and so I thought if I've got the ability to lead a team and focus on something, then then what an opportunity to make a difference. You are known as the superstar of STEM. 
uh, the science, <laughs> technology, uh, engineering, isn't it? It, it? And you champion a lot for that because you believe that there, there are not enough women in that space. Yeah, absolutely. I think like in any sector, we need to encourage the most diverse team as possible if we want to come up with innovative solutions. So Agreed. we get nowhere with, you know, kind of group think and only one idea. So I love having men and women in my team. I like having people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, but also with different training. So people that have like an, a bioengineering training or a medical training or a scientific training and having those discussions with a diverse group is where we get the most interesting and um, innovative solutions, which is what we need. And and in 2018, you found uh, founded the um, Steminist Book Club, uh, which is a global and virtual community focusing on uh, feminism and women in STEM. Uh, tell yes, us a little bit was, about um, that. Is that, that. I hear that's growing quite rapidly. Yeah, it's a little unexpected. Um, so that was not planned. That was really just I was, you know, on my summer holiday and I'd recently joined Twitter and I saw that another female academic at Sydney Uni had tweeted that she was reading a a brilliant book called Inferior by a British author, Angela Siney, um, that I was also reading. And I so I tweeted back and said, oh, you know, it would be fantastic to discuss this together. Maybe we should have a glass of wine and a chat. And she said, yeah, let's, you know, have a book club of, of women in STEM. And so we tweeted about it and it just went a little bit bananas and um, we now have um, women all over the world and men uh, that join in our discussions and there's pre-COVID-19 there were physical meetups in in cities like Istanbul and New York and Sydney and Melbourne and all over the place and it's become a really lovely lovely community of um, like-minded individuals that you know really want to change what STEM looks like in the future. How do you think COVID-19 will change the work for scientists like yourself? Look, I'm, I'm fairly concerned, to tell you the truth. Um, I think it's not going to be great for women in science particularly. I think many women uh, are juggling the homeschooling and the caring responsibilities. I, I myself have two young kids and I know the last eight weeks have been absolute mayhem. Um, and I think that is a little bit of a worry and particularly if this is prolonged and people need to make decisions about who might be the primary carer for kids, that that could lead to more women um, being forced out of, of research careers. I'm also worried in Australia a lot of medical research is supported in the university sector and as your viewers would be aware um, there's been a huge impact of COVID-19 on funding for research um, at universities due to the drop in international students and so there was a report released um, this week that suggested that maybe 7,000 research jobs would be lost across Australia this year and that would be an absolute tragedy because this is these are the researchers that are coming up with new treatments. These are the researchers working on COVID-19 diagnostics and vaccines, and these are the people we might lose. So I'm currently very concerned. I know there are there's a lot of lobbying going on and, and we're hopeful that maybe there'll be some sort of rescue package, but for women in particular, this is going to be tough. So any hope, like in terms of any 
great opportunities yes. out of COVID-19. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think one, Please give us that, hope. <laughs> yes, no, I, I think there's two excellent things. So one is, um, so a big part of research is having to travel internationally and go to conferences and meet with our peers and present data and keep up to date. And that has always been a massive barrier, particularly for women in STEM that might have young kids or might be breastfeeding to be able to fly off to America and Europe a few times a year is is very hard. All of those big international conferences have now very rapidly gone online and it means that we can all log on and it's equal. We don't have to worry about being excluded from the conversation that happens in New York at the big international conference of XYZ. We can be part of it. It's made everyone understand about working from home and working flexibly. I think that will change. And um, I think I think it will be um, better in the long run because I think people are having an appreciation of what productivity means and how you can actually um, get the most out of your team and recognise that they are a whole person, that they're not just this image you get at the workplace from nine to five, that, mm. that life is messy, they have kids, they have pets. They have that's that's the reality of life, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and I think it's making us connect with each other, um, I'm hoping, in a much more caring and, and understanding way. Um, last question. Um, what do you think of the uh, anti-vaccination? Um, obviously, there's been a lot in recent weeks about um, vaccination. I, I mean, I, I think it's <laughs> I think it's really unfortunate. Um, I think the evidence for the positive effects of vaccination are so far stacked in one direction um, that it is difficult for me as a scientist to understand. Another positive effect of COVID-19 that I didn't mention that directly relates to this is I think maybe for the first time in my career, scientists are being listened to. So we are <laughs> being recognised as the, as the experts and, you know, people are turning to your Norman Swans and all of the people out there that are voices of reasons that are the great science communicators we have in Australia. And so I'm hopeful that this means that people appreciate that scientists undergo massive amounts of training, that we are very rigorous, we attempt to be as unbiased as possible and that we should be listening to our experts in this area. We shouldn't be listening to Facebook posts or a blogger or someone that has an opinion about something. We should be looking at evidence for all of these things. So I'm hopeful that maybe scientists will rise in the public esteem. But yeah, I think so. I think with all with viruses uh, everywhere now, uh, obviously it's not, you know, in the past it was the financial crisis, so you turn to the bankers and to the financial advisors. And now because the virus has come into play or it kind of seemed to disrupt the, the world uh, everywhere, every everybody, uh, so scientists are now, I think, will be the rising They'll be the rising experts. The or rising scientists. Even though you, there, there seems to be, there could potentially be loss of research jobs, but I think more and more you would want, um, you know, because people are talking about a second, the, the, the virus, COVID-19, mutating into another, um, mm. you know, another form. So I'm sure scientists will be talking about it. And I'd love to take get touch base with any of your virologists um contacts sure. to talk about that'd yeah. be great 
Absolutely. I can I can send you some names. Fantastic. Look, thank you, thank you so much for your time. And I know how busy you are, you know, working from home and all of that. And I wish, you know, we wish you wonderful going back next week. Look, are you looking forward to that? Yes, I am. Yeah. Back, back into the lab, putting on your white coat and everything and starting to. That's right. Looking down the microscope, the yeah. stereotype is real. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Caroline. And uh, we appreciate your time. Um, that's it from us from Dawncast. We're always eager to hear your story. So please do reach out to us and tell us if you've got a un- great story to share. Uh, in the meantime, do subscribe, click on the link below or click like, and uh, we'll come back again next time with another a wonderful story to share. See you then. Bye. Bye.